Please be seated. Well, as I explained last week, uh, and we're going through Revelation, so for any who haven't been with us, I'll refer back to some things, but not everything may plug together so nicely. But I mentioned last week there was an intermission coming up, and that is what we see today in chapter 7. It, uh, we, we went through the first six seals, and then we come to this passage in chapter 7, and it seems to be a whole different scene, and it is. But how does it all fit together? I, I thought about titling it Intermission. I thought about titling this God Will Save because that's clearly a theme that comes from this passage, one that I hope that you will see clearly today. But instead, I decided to draw our attention to that very last verse in the passage It's one that is probably one of the greatest and most precious promises that we have, that one day he will wipe away every tear. It's hard for us to imagine. In fact, I don't think we can imagine it. I don't think we can imagine a reality without sorrow. You know, so often when we think of sin, we think of the grievous stuff and how it messes everything up, but we don't. Maybe we don't realize how sin just breaks our hearts. The world is not all that, it's not as it should be. We don't know the peace of God in the way that we will one day when we know perfect shalom. He will wipe away every tear, every sadness, every grief, every heartache that we've ever had or will ever have. And he will restore all that has been lost, all that has been broken and heal all of our diseases. And that is because he has solved our greatest problem, which has caused, or caused rather, everything to be lost and broken and ill and grieved. That is our sin. The one who is worthy to open the scroll, the one who is worthy to stand, has washed our garments in his blood. That picture of his redeeming work is what we see here in the seventh chapter of Revelation. And so the picture that is here is that of God's saving power and the praise that is due Him. We see these hymns that are sung to Him. That is what seven uh, is, is for us today. It's portraying the work of redemption and our ultimate hope. It gives us a snapshot, another snapshot, another look into what things will be like. And as I've said more than once during our study of Revelation... These aren't pictures, they're they're, they're pictures, but they're not photographs, okay? They're pictures, but they're not photographs. They're more like impressionist paintings. We see through a glass dimly, and all I can tell you is where we can't be exact and precise, it's just going to be better than we imagined, ever imagined. The driving force behind this passage, God's saving work, the praise that he is due, and the future hope that awaits us all. The reason that I'm saying this is the driving force, and we're getting into some of the particulars now, so I know some of you are are maybe thinking more along the blueprint lines. Okay, 144,000, and, you know, who are these, and where does this fit, and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to drive this point home again. Revelation is an epistle. It is a pastoral letter. It is written by John with the heart of a pastor to a suffering set of churches in Asia Minor. And it's written to every believer since because it's in God's Word 
to all of us because we all suffer, because we all struggle. It is God's word to them and to us. It is a message to those who suffer as they wait for the return of the king. It is a message given to encourage, a message given to give hope, to build up our hope. And it's certainly a message to strengthen us to persevere into the end. And my guess is in that a room this size, there are some who feel like they are at the end. You feel like giving up, and it is because of that that we have this book of Revelation to strengthen us to continue. I remind you of John's opening words in chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in what? The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The brother and partner of theirs and ours in the tribulation of suffering for the name of Christ points us to this glorious truth. God will save. He is able to save to the uttermost. There is nothing that will prevent him from carrying out his plan. And so as we begin then, look in verse 1. We see the familiar phrase, After this I saw, and we know that that is a signal to a new part of the vision. I may have at times said a new vision. I really think John had one vision. I don't think these were separate in the sense of, you know, he went and had a snack and came back or anything like that. I think it was one vision that he experienced. But there's, there, there clearly are uh, kind of movements, like in music, within the vision itself. And when we see him say things like this, after this I saw... He's not saying after this, this will happen. He's saying after this, I saw. He's describing his experience. So we have to be careful because sometimes our tendency is to read that and think that that means that this is what's coming next in some kind of linear fashion. I know we've talked about that a number of times. That's not how Jewish literature really works. But John is saying after this, I saw. So it's a signal that this is something different that's happening. The first six seals have been opened. We're waiting for that seventh seal. And he says, after this I saw, and this is drawing our attention. Anytime John says, I saw or I heard, he's using those devices to draw our attention. Pay attention, look closely, I'm going to tell you something here, it's significant. And at times, John hears something, and then he sees something that appears to be different. It's something that is not different in a contrary way, but different in terms of it's rather an expansion or a clarification. We could say it's an explanation of what he just heard. And I think that's what we see here in this passage, where he hears one thing and then he sees the explanation of what that is. But before um, we do that, I want to explain again that the the, the way that we approach things as Westerners with our linear minds is we, we look at things in a chronological order and that's, we can't approach Revelation that way. Rather, this is his description of his vision. And now here is this intermission. I think the intermission makes sense uh, in, in one sense that it is moving us somewhere else rather than after. because, And I explained some of the differences between that sixth seal was that the, I mean, it's clearly something cataclysmic, right? I mean, the sun goes dark, mountains and islands are moved. Is that the end? Uh, preterists, historicists understand that symbolically. Uh, futurists, idealists can, can be in either or, or typically are, are looking more toward the end. Um, but if it is the end, 
then it would make sense that we're moving somewhere else because the end has already happened. So we at least need to consider that what John is doing is moving us to some other place. And my argument is that he is taking us back to the beginning of the first seal. And I'll explain that, uh, why I believe that in just a minute. That what is happening here in this intermission is that we are being shown that God has set and determined a protection for His people before the judgments ever fall. Before you can harm a tree, before you can harm the sea or the earth, set my seal upon my people. That is the message that we're being heard here. So before we go back to that first seal, before those riders could go out with those acts of judgment, God has set His protection in place. Tribulation. Now, there again, a lot of variety on what we're talking about. Is it a tribulation? Is it the tribulation? Or is it the great tribulation? We see all of that language in Scripture. And I'm not going to be too particular other than to say that all Christians will know tribulation. Jesus said that to us in John 16.33. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so we're not excluded from that. Now in verse 1, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. And I think the number, the use of the number four isn't reason enough in and of itself that this is taking us back to the four horsemen, but it's at least a signal that we should consider it because of the way numbers are used in apocalyptic literature. Uh, the number four appears here. We've already seen the number four. Let's go back. Let's look how the number of four was used there as well. Numbers, uh, as we've said in apocalyptic literature, used typically symbolically. And so when we see the way one number is used, we should look in other parts of Scripture, particularly that same apocalyptic literature, to see how it's used there to help us understand it. And so if we look back to the four horsemen, what, were, what, what was the number four for? Do you remember why there were four? Why is, how do we see that used in the Old Testament? Well, it's typically associated with the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. That is, it is complete. So when the four corners of the world, it means the whole world. So when the four horsemen are sent out, it means they're going to cover everything. Nothing's going to be left out. And so here we have these four angels that are uh, being sent out to protect in the same fashion, that they are going to protect all of God's elect. There is no, no one that is going to be left out. And we're going back to that beginning before this happens because, frankly, that's the only way it makes sense. That God's saving hand, is if you look at the language that's used in the text, before you can harm a tree, before you can touch the sea, before you can let the winds loose, set my seal upon. So that before then has to take us back before this unfolds. And so we've talked about parallels or a simultaneous timeline. That's what chapter 7 is. It's simultaneous. It's describing in heaven what we see uh, and, and where chapter 6 is describing what we see on earth. Another consideration that we can make is if we look back to Zechariah and where the four horsemen uh, first were presented. 
And those, in Zechariah 6, those four horses were pictured leading chariots to patrol the earth. And specifically in verse 5, they're going out to the four winds of heaven. So we see very similar language that is used there. So there are at least corollaries, if not a direct connection, to the four horsemen. That means that if we understand it this way, that before the four horsemen can deliver their judgment, the seal is placed on God's people. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. This is verse 3, until we have sealed the servants of their foreheads. Again, that phrase, uh, earth, sea, trees, that's designed to cover all of creation. John could have just written everyone on the earth or all of the earth, but he adds the sea and the trees to give more poetically a bigger picture. They are prevented from bringing harm in some all-encompassing matter until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So what is this seal? You know, we, we look ahead and everyone knows about the mark of the beast and you know, so many Christians have been fearful through the ages that somehow they were going to accidentally get the mark of the beast. Uh, I know we're not there yet, but I've already said it, and I'll use this occasion to say it against. You can't accidentally get the mark of the beast. You don't have to fear that. You can't lose your salvation. God said no one would pluck you from his hand. That means there's nothing you can get, uh, whether it was a Visa card in the 1980s or a chip implanted to you in the 1990s or something else in the current time. That's not going to happen. So let's, and to reinforce that, let's look at what the seal is for the believers. Because the mark of the beast is just the counterfeit of what the Christian has in the seal. What is the seal? The seal, if we understand a seal just in its generic form, a seal is used to designate ownership. If you have a seal on a letter, it indicates that it's authentic, that it belongs to the person who placed the seal. Uh, I use the, the grippy seal because that's what I think of. I have People have given me those seals uh, for, for gifts through the years, and I put them in my book You know where it seals, it crimps the page so that if you borrow a book from me, I can always come back to you and show you that in that page, this book belongs to Seth Wallace. Um, I'm serious, but I mean, it's also kind of a joke, you know. <laughs> I'm happy to share my books with anyone, but the seal is there. It indicates ownership. Uh, it also, if we think of it in the case of a letter where uh, someone would seal with a signet ring, it, it prevents someone opening the letter, altering the letter. It, it, it speaks to its validity uh, in terms of that you can trust it. If we go back to the Old Testament and we look at how seals were used then, in Exodus 28, when we have the establishment of the practices of worship, we see the priests were to wear a breastplate with 12 stones. And they were to be like the engravings of a seal, verse 21 of chapter 28. And then we go on to the high priest, and he was to have a gold plate engraved like a seal with the phrase, holy to the Lord on it. So the sealing is not only a mark of just that God owns us, that we belong to him, but it is a mark that he has made us his priests. And again, we go back to Exodus 19. That was what uh, Israel was told that they were going to be. We, have, we fast forward to you know, 1 Peter. We're told that as the church we are uh, priests to God. We have that language throughout the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 10, and at the end, chapter 20, verse 6, that you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. 
That is who we are. Those who have been sealed have been made a kingdom and priests to our God. So this is speaking of all what happens to all believers, right? We are made his own. Another aspect of the seal that may help us understand what it accomplishes is the Passover. You remember the story of the Passover that the the angel of death would pass over the homes that had the blood painted on the doorpost. Even those who painted the blood on the doorposts understood that that painting did not take away the that, that didn't that there was no saving in the in the blood there right it's it pointed to something else it was symbolic of something it was an act of faith they were by faith painting the blood on there trusting that god would save them and so it was a mark and it became a mark of protection that it protected them and their firstborn from facing death. So it is a mark of ownership. It's a mark of protection. The third consideration of the seal is what the New Testament speaks to the work, the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 1.21, we read, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so the Holy Spirit indwells every believer and has been placed there as a seal or a guarantee of our salvation. Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so here we understand the mark is not just an object. The mark is a person. The seal is a person. It's the Holy Spirit. He serves as a guarantee for all who are trusting in Christ. Now, I would point out that all three of these considerations here apply to all believers, not just a special group of believers. It is true of all believers that we have been sealed. We've been marked with the ownership. We've been made a priest to our God. We have received the protection of our God. No one can pluck us out of his hand. No one can separate us from the love of God. And the Holy Spirit lives within us as that guarantee. And so the question comes up, who are the 144,000? And as with all difficult questions in Revelation, we'll just skip over it uh, and just keep going. Um, I'm really going to do that one week. No. Who are the 144,000? If you uh, grew up in, in, in really... And all of us, right? I mean, if you've lived in America or anywhere in the West and been affected by uh, evangelicalism in any way, you have at least encountered the thought, are you a part of the 144,000? Even if you didn't understand, like as a kid, I didn't understand anything, any of this. I just remember there were other kids who would go around and say things like that at church groups. You know, are you part of the 100? It was this fear thing that really challenged the assurance of your salvation. Who are the 144,000? Well, if we look, the group is described as from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So these are from every tribe of the sons of Israel, and that would lead and has led many to believe that these are Jewish people who have come to saving faith. But beyond that description, that's the only thing that would lead us to think that group is such. There's nothing else that sets this group apart. And I think that if we consider the language of the New Testament and how it speaks of the New Testament church with Old Testament language, we actually are going to see something very different. 
Actually, I would argue that the New Testament church is the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. What do I mean by fulfillment? Well, Paul in Romans 2 writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That should be enough to end the argument and the discussion. That in biblical terms, a Jew who is one of God's people is not one who is one outwardly. In other words, Paul's saying this is not according to the flesh. If you've been looking according to the flesh, you've missed it. Got to come back. Let's go back. Let's explain things all over again. He goes on. It's not one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. That's really, really clear in and of itself. I know we usually go to Galatians 3 on this. I'm purposefully not. Uh, if, you, if you want to go to Galatians 3 and look at that later uh, in particular to see that we are all sons of Abraham uh, according to the promise, that's a strong, strong argument. But I think this is really, really clear in Romans 2. The fulfillment of Old Testament Israel is a people of God who are his by faith, that is the heart, not by the law or the letter. It is not a physical inheritance. It is a spiritual inheritance. This is what God intended all along. They have been regenerated inwardly by the Spirit and have thus been sealed. They have received the mark on their forehead. You remember that Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. I already alluded to this, Exodus 19.6, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. And then we fast forward and we see the church of Jesus Christ called that in 1 Peter 2. Romans 10, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. No distinction between Jew or Greek, same Lord, Lord of all. And maybe the most compelling uh, passage besides Galatians 3, and now I would include Romans 2, Ephesians 2, For He Himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. There is one God, He has one people, and there is one way of salvation. And I'm, I'm speaking, if, if you're not picking up on this, then it's okay because I'm going after something that is particularly problematic in modern evangelicalism, that the church and Israel are two different distinct peoples of God. And that is not biblical. Now, we won't time, take time to unpack the list, but I do want to point out a few uh, issues with it. One, it is unique. This list of the 12 tribes is unique. Uh, both in its order and its content. If you notice, Judah is at the top. Does that now? We just studied Genesis, so you should clue in on this, right? Was Judah, should Judah be first? What, what what number was Judah? He was down the line. Well, I think he was number four. I should have looked that up. I think he's number four, right? Reuben should have been first in the list. He's not. Judah's put first. Why is that? Where did the Messiah come from? He's the line of the tribe of Judah. This is where the Messiah has come from. The other thing is interesting is some of the outsider sons, some of the, the sons of the, of the maidservants are listed before, out of birth order, the ones who were sons of the wives. And many believe this is an indication that one day the fulfillment of Israel would include outsiders 
It would not just be about a national entity. But more importantly than those two arguments, I want us to see what's actually here in the text. What is John's experience? Now, the problem is, depending on how your Bibles are laid out, you may have a pericope between 8 and 9, that little title that is there. Do you have one of those? I have one in my Bible, so I'm sure some of you may have one in yours, where it separates the 144,000 from the great multitude. And for some reason, when we come to those little uh, inserted titles, those are not a part of the original scriptures, those aren't inspired, those are just helpful things for us. We divide it in our minds, but that division isn't there. So I want you to see verses 8 and 9 as they would have really appealed, uh, appeared. rather. In verse 4, he says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. I said 8 and 9, I meant 4. But but 8 and 9 being a uh, continuum. He says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. And then in verse 9, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Does that remind you, that literary structure of anything else that we've seen? I heard this, then I looked and I saw that. Do you remember back in chapter 5? John heard the elder say to him, Weep no more. When John was so distraught because no one was worthy to open the seals, the elder came to him and said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then in the next verse, verse 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And that same device is used here. I heard this, I saw that. It is an expansion. John heard lion and he saw a lamb who was slain. He heard 144,000 from the tribes of Israel and he saw a great multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That 144,000, I I mentioned anytime we see numbers, we need to go look how they're used. We don't have time. I'm already out of time. But but just, you you can peek ahead toward the end. We'll eventually get there. The New Jerusalem, uh, you know, 12 times 12, the the symbolic uh, image of the New Jerusalem, 12, that number of completeness. Here we see 12 times 12, 144. Uh, We remember that probably from our third grade multiplication tables, if nothing else. And then times a thousand to get to that 144,000. A thousand being the magnitude. So it's complete magnitude. That's the picture of the 144,000. And so John hears this picture of this, this magnitude. This complete magnitude of those who have been, who have been sealed. Those who have been, will be saved. And then he turns and he sees And I would say probably with the same shock of expecting the Lion of Judah and seeing a lamb that had been slain, he turns and sees a multitude beyond all measure from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Before we unpack all that, and and we're going to pick up speed here, I just want to mention this first half, though. The picture is on God's protection. His salvation. He has placed his seal. Before he allows those four horsemen, those six seals to unfold, he's put his plan of protection in place. And that means that nothing, no tragedy, nothing can harm the ultimate salvation of his people. That means that you are held secure, which is, of course, great comfort. But that also means that those who have yet to be saved, who are his, 
And for many of us, this is loved ones, family members that we're thinking about. For those who are His, He will accomplish His salvation. Trust Him. Trust Him to do that. Yes, God's people suffer. God's people die. But they are ultimately safe in Him and await an eternity where all is as it should be. Now jumping down to verse 9, that is what we see. All is as it should be. That's what that last half represents. It is a picture of this great multitude that John couldn't even imagine. And then that ultimate snapshot of that heavenly picture of what it would look like. Simon Kistemacher writes, By reading the Apocalypse, we become increasingly aware that John writes the Revelation from a Jewish perspective. The author repeatedly presents his material in seemingly repetitious form meant to stress a certain point. Two similar accounts of the same thing often emphasize a specific revelation John records. The first account is the ideal, while the second is the reality. And that is what would describe here what John has heard the ideal, 144,000, and the reality, a picture of people beyond his wildest imagination from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And notice that they're standing. Do you remember the question, who is able to stand? And we said, who is able to stand? The Holy One, that's it. He's the only one. Who else can stand? Who can raise their hand? None of us can. But here we fast forward, we get a glimpse into the future, and we see that those who represent us, this great multitude, are standing before the throne. It is because the Lamb has cleansed us from our sins that we will be able to stand. And the explanation is given after these densely packed hymns, these songs of praise are sung in verse 14. It is because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's not the exact same literary device, but it's very similar. What do you expect when you hear of people who have washed their robes in blood? You expect them to be red, and what does John see? They're white. The image of purity. They are described as coming out of the great tribulation. Again, different views on this, whether this includes the entire church age, whether it includes an intensification of things uh, at the very end. What this uh, wouldn't mean that we wouldn't hold to is that there's a separate event uh, that the church is secretly taken out, and these are people who have been saved in this time. We'll get to that, unpack that more later. I think it's interesting to note that when we look in the writings of Paul, and I just came across this this past week, But in the writings of Paul, 23 times he writes of tribulation. And 21 of the 23 times speaks to a present reality instead of an end-time event. Jesus said, you will have tribulation. There clearly is to be suffering for all who are in Christ. Now this is hard for us to understand because we read of our brothers and sisters in difficult places around the world and we think, well, this, this isn't suffering. This can't be counted as suffering. We, don't, we didn't get to choose where we were born, when we were born, our context in life any more than they did. But there is a reality that all believers suffer. We suffered the effects of our own sin. Now, we've numbed ourselves to a lot of this stuff, and we can certainly pacify uh, some of that pain because we have means, and, and we can, you know, if we are sad, we can just go buy a new boat or something. Uh, but or, or whatever it is, I know it's not a boat for everybody because that's actually more suffering uh, for, for anyone who's uh, 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 bought a boat. But, uh, but a toy, a pack of gum, whatever it is that you would pacify the pain, we have that means. And so we're, we, we get kind of numb to it. 
But there is suffering in the life of a believer. And while there may be an increased time of tribulation, an intensification of all that is going on, the church age can be described as a time of tribulation. But there is a day that is coming when all will be made right, and that's what we see in the final three verses of the passage. A picture of the heavenly reality. Note that the temple isn't a structure. It is literally the presence of God. In verse 15, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. I realized and I said to Clayton this morning, I bit off more than I can chew. There's so much here that I'm not only skipping over in my notes, but that I skipped over in my preparation. I probably should have divided this into two sermons. There's so much that we could say here about God tabernacling with his people in the person of Christ and then what that points to in the future in heaven when God shelters us with his presence. All longing comes to an end. All suffering ceases. Satisfaction, contentment, and pleasure are the reality of God's people forever. That's what the psalmist wrote of. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, I'll say it. It'll be better than we can ever imagine. Can't give you the details, but it'll be better. Better than you can imagine. If we think back of the Garden of Eden in Genesis, it wasn't that long ago that we were there. We remember that God put man and woman there in the garden, not only to work it, but to enjoy the garden. But He set them there as His representative on earth, as His vice regent. And we remember the fellowship that they enjoyed with God. And all was well because God had made everything good. But of course, sin came along and wrecked all of that. It broke that beautiful place. And not only broke the creation, but it broke the relationships between The creation and the other creation, not just us and snakes, but us and each other. Um, But ultimately, it broke that relationship between creation and their creator. They were the ones who had been created in his image to enjoy fellowship with him. And now all of this had been marred by sin. And that set the trajectory for our own history. But God gave a promise, and we remember that promise, and we talk about that promise often that the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus did that. So John now takes us here to the end of the time so that we see that after this current heaven and earth pass away, a new one comes, and it will be better than Eden. Better than we can imagine. Our relationship with our Maker will be perfectly restored, and all of our sin will be removed. The difference... The difference will be that grace will be on display in a unique way that wasn't there in the garden. This is what we read of in Ephesians 1. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Revelation 7 is a glimpse of that coming age when we will see fully and all creation will praise God for the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That immeasurable grace that is freely offered to all who put their trust in Christ.
That's what the next verse says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not a gift. It's not a work of your own. It's a gift so that no one can boast. No one will earn their way into this heavenly picture. It is only by faith in the one who earned it for us so that we would be able to stand before the throne. And in that time, all of our griefs will disappear as God wipes away every tear. I quote C.S. Lewis a lot with this one, everything sad will become untrue. That's the picture that we have here in Revelation 7 as we behold Him making all things new. And we will be at His right hand forever where there are joys and pleasures unending. And everything, everything, everything will be perfectly at peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for that day. But as we're here...